Hi, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm editor of medical design and outsourcing at Mass Device Resource. Today we have Bill Betton here. Bill Betton is a uh, pro product development consultant in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul with decades of experience in the industry. Uh, Bill is at this point is four and a half months into a, a successful recovery after uh, after brain surgery, and he's uh, gained many uh, interesting insights about uh, about medical devices. You know from you know from what he you know what he went through. So. Uh, Bill, you know, welcome to MDU. I'm really glad you, you, you know, you could come on here and, you know, discuss your story with us. Happy to be here, Chris. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. And just a just a quick note from for everybody. Uh, you know, Bill and I will be, uh, you know, doing a, a much larger, longer version of this talk at a Device Talks Minnesota early next week. So we, I really encourage you, if you're around the Twin Cities, to you know, come to the show in downtown Minneapolis and, uh, you know, hear some, some more of, of Bill's story. We'll be, and there'll be a chance to ask questions and, you know, it, it should be a really good talk. I'm really looking forward to it, but, you know, Bill, let's just start out with your story. I mean, I mean, let's start out with, you know, I mean, how, how did you find out that you were sick? Well, uh, a very interesting, uh, path to getting there. Um, like a typical male, I think I ignored symptoms for quite some period of time. Uh, but uh, starting in February of this year, I had some shooting pains in my leg uh, that uh, basically one morning woke me up. It felt like the inside of my leg was on fire. I went to my general practitioner. We thought perhaps a pinched nerve. And after a short period of trying to treat something for that, I uh, ended up uh, deciding to go see a neuroscientist or a neurologist uh, to uh, do some more checking. And uh, that was in March of this year. I was in talking to the neurologist, describing my symptoms. She's testing my leg for strength and weakness and motion and all that sort of thing. And I happened to mention that uh, in addition, I'd been having a series of headaches and a little bit of blurred vision and some other things. And she said, hmm, you're over 40 years of age, you're having headaches and some blurry vision. That indicates also you should have an MRI. And I said, well, when? Expecting that it would be a time of appointment. She said, we had a cancellation right now. And uh, so how about now? And a few <laughs> minutes later, I was in the tube. Wow. That, that must have been something else. Uh, yeah, it was really interesting. I have a long history of working in the medical imaging business going back to, oh, geez, I, almost 30 years where we were beaming images off of an aircraft carrier back in the, in the 90s. Uh, so I understood MRIs, in fact, had a lunch with the generally credited father of, of the MRI uh, a couple of years ago when we were both at a conference together. Uh, yeah, so Dr. I, Raymond Demadian, right, or Demadian, or... Uh, Demadian, yes, yeah. and uh, uh, we had lunch, and I didn't realize that a couple of years later I'm going to be uh, uh, inside one of those tubes and uh, uh, being imaged because I'd never had an MRI done on me until uh, that particular point in time. And uh, as I'm laying there for 45 minutes in that tube having my brain imaged, 
all those thoughts kind of rush through my mind. Uh, I worked for the company that builds much of the uh, electronics, uh, the the custom cables that go inside of certain MRI systems the, uh, that provide the imaging. So I had that familiarity, and uh, I'd had the great pleasure of meeting some people who worked on the GE uh, child-friendly MRI design. So I'm laying in a tube, staring upwards, listening listening to late 70s rock music in my ears, wondering what the heck's going to happen to me, and all these thoughts are kind of racing through my head. Wow. And, you know, I've got to imagine, you know, your your knowledge of what an MRI was was like for somebody versus actually being in it was, um, was it, it must have been very different. It, it was, and uh, you know, obviously uh, being very confining, and it's amazing to me. And, and I've got to go find out the technical reasons for why all of the uh, various sounds. For anybody who's ever been in an MRI, uh, you you certainly get the the variety of sounds that go through there as it's doing its very uh, various imaging things is is curious to me. So I certainly understand how it flips the hydrogen molecules and looks at the magnetic field and as they relax and all that sort of stuff. But it's really different being a patient inside one. And after 45 minutes in there, uh, my my neurologist had told me, well, we'll look at it and read the results, and if we, uh, if I find something, I'll come back and see you right away. But uh, otherwise, we'll look at the results and get back to you in a week. So I got out of the machine, got my uh, clothes back on, and all of a sudden, the neurologist came around the corner, and I said, "Whoops, there's that. That probably isn't normal." And she said, looked at it, and says, "Yeah, you've got a tumor in your head." And so wow. that probably explains some of these uh, symptoms you've been having. And, and you hear the words brain and tumor together. Yeah, not, not two things you want to hear. Uh, no. And, and, and you're, you go right away to, wow. Yeah. What does it all mean? And, and, of course, the scientist and engineer in me kicked in and said, well, tell me more about it. And she took me up and we started looking at the film. And basically, it's somewhere between a golf ball and a tennis ball in size. It was something called a meningioma. And her comment to me was, it's been there for a very long time, decade at least, uh, growing. And the good news is 90% of these tumors are non-malignant. Of course, my mind went to the other 10% that that left. But she said it's probably non-malignant, but we don't know until, you know, somebody goes in and looks at it. And the the next step for you is to... uh, probably go see a surgeon and I know what the recommendation is going to be given the size somewhere between a golf ball and a tennis ball in size. Um, they're going to recommend surgery. And so I'm listening to all of that and all of a sudden all that imaging work and all the medical stuff I've done, done over the years became really, really personal for me. Wow. Yeah. It really made it. I mean, I mean, it really sounds like it made it real for you. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, you hear all those things of what happens uh, uh, then. But uh, I walked out to the car. I'd been going in for what I thought was a simple uh, neurological exam and some things like that. And uh, the, the one thing I'll say is calling your wife on your way home and telling her that you have a brain tumor probably isn't the best way to handle it. Uh, but that's what I did, you know, because <laughs> it was... I got in the car and I'm heading for home and I said, honey, it's like this. They found out that I have a brain tumor. 
And uh, so I, I probably should have waited till I got home in hindsight. But at the time, you know, how do you deal with it? You were probably a little preoccupied. <laughs> just just a little bit. Uh, just a little bit. The the again. The, it became a challenge. Now, what am I going to do about this? What has to happen? And and that sort of thing. And and that kind of led to some of the next steps. And yeah, what the, were next the next step steps? was, what am I going to do? Uh, I need to find uh, a surgeon. I need to find a hospital. I need to go through all of this. And uh, I'd been relatively healthy most of my life. Uh, I hadn't been in a hospital since I was a freshman in college way back when. The only time I'd ever been under anesthesia was a, a herniated disc outpatient surgery, geez, 25 years ago, and, and wow. that was outpatient. So I got to go home the same day, and all of a sudden I'm thinking about having my, my brain cut open. And um, a lot of things went through my head, like how do I go and find this? And uh, through my career, I've had some interesting exposures to neuroscience. Uh, I, I've done some work with some of the folks at Mayo Clinic in, in, in that area. I've certain, certainly watched the work going on with the implants and Parkinson's and things like that. Uh, but that's a little different than when the, it's going to be done to you. And so I began that searching process of, of what, do I, what do I have to do to find this? So I called my my insurance company and you know they they said well we've got some doctors on staff and we've got this and i said i need to go through and obviously vet doctors so make a long story short i called my insurance company i called uh, a surgeon friend of mine uh, i looked for some recommendations i got a list of about 10 people sorted them down to two and actually went and in in essence interviewed both of them to find out which one I was going to uh, have cut me open. Wow. So you, you selected your surgeon. You know, what, what, you know, I mean, how did, every, how did everything go with the, with the procedure? Uh, well, let me talk just real briefly about that selection process because yeah. it, it's interesting. It's not like there's a handbook that says, here are all the people and, and they're rated and, and right. you pick the best one because you talk to the insurance company and they say, all our surgeons are good. Uh, you talk to facility, they all say, oh, we all do the, uh, you know, we'll, we'll all do a great job. The insurance company ultimately just said, make sure you pick somebody who's in network and pick a hospital uh, for it as well. Wow. We went and interviewed two surgeons. Um, one gentleman who was probably mid-career mid and ha uh, was very personable and we had a great conversation. He trained at Mayo back in the day. And so we had a conversation about that. The other gentleman was probably near the end of his career, uh, had done thousands of these surgeries in his time, but clearly was uh, of, of a different school of medicine. And, and my wife and I, when we walked out after having interviewed both doctors um, on uh, about three days apart, said we want doctor number one to do this because we actually felt like a person. And, and, and as my wife so eloquently put it, not a hunk of meat laying there. And, and I am confident that either surgeon would have done a great job. Um, but the fact that the first doctor, actually the, the night after I'd been in to see him, called to ask if I had any further questions. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting another opinion and doing that. He said, that's fine. I just want to make sure that you get operated on. Whether I do it or not, you should go ahead with the surgery. And so um, we chose the doctor that had um, made yeah, me really great. feel comfortable. 
really, really felt comfortable. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. So you could feel good about the the person. You knew that that he had the experience, and you, you felt good about what kind of person he was. And I mean that that seems important as as well. Um, you know that 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 there seemed to be some kind of connection that you weren't as as your wife said you weren't just like just some other some other patient just being wheeled in. You know that that you know this person recognized you as a human being. Um, so, I mean, how long did the surgery take? Uh, went in for surgery about three weeks after my, after the diagnosis. So we were on a fast track because I had a goal to get out in, in time for a, a family get together. And, and it was an interesting challenge, but, uh, surgery took about seven and a half hours. Wow. Um, so I was put you under. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was funny because, uh, as, as a medical professional the, the the day before my surgery i had been in uh at the mayo clinic doing some work with some folks down there and and we were actually doing a cadaver lab on a new kind of instrument and so we had five cadavers and a um and five surgeons in doing some stuff and so i spent the day evaluating the outcomes of that interviewing them talking to them and that sort of thing so the next day I'm in for my surgery and about seven o'clock in the morning, they've got me lying on there. They're starting to feed me the medication to put me under. I'm meeting the surgical team for the, the first time and they're introducing themselves. They said, gang, it's like this. Yesterday, I was at the Mayo Clinic. I described the cadaver lab that, that we had been doing there. And I said, your job <laughs> today is to keep me from being one of those when we're done. <laughs> and then they laughed. Yeah. And, and, and I said... You probably don't have many people walk in and tell you something like that ahead of time. And they said, no, they couldn't remember that. But um, <laughs> it was important going in. So at that point, seven and a half hours later, eight hours later, I'm waking up uh, after surgery and um, waiting to talk to the doctor. And, and they came in. And, and to make a long story short, it went very well. They got about 98% of the meningioma. They couldn't get the other 2% or so because it was uh, kind of intertwined. Um, uh, the, the tumor was on the top right part of my uh, head, um, basically along the right hemisphere um, wow. in back. And um, it, it was impinging a little bit onto the, the vein that runs between the, um, the hemispheres, and they didn't want to take any risks there so they did a little heat treatment and that sort of thing but got 98 percent of the tumor and uh we'll be monitoring it for you know quite a period of time i've since had i think uh two or three mris uh just had one a couple of weeks ago that was my three-month uh checkup i have another one in another six months and then after that hopefully i'm on a annual basis uh the prognosis is good uh i have some a little residual problem with my left leg here uh, a numbness and a stiffness that wasn't there before but uh comparatively it's minor so but overall everything was cleared out nothing malignant yeah i was fortunate to be in that 90 percentile where uh, the meningiomas are 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 not malignant they did the the biopsy on it as they were going through this and and it was not malignant uh, as I said, about 2% was left behind. They couldn't get it all uh, due to its location and that sort of thing. They'll monitor it 
And, uh, you know, I've had a couple of follow-up MRIs that are looking good, and they'll probably do it, switch to an annual monitoring mode. And as was indicated uh, by one of the, the, the neurosurgeon, it's the kind of thing that even if it comes back, they're usually slow growing enough that I would die with it, not, not from it. And, and they'd have an option of figuring out what to do, uh, what to do with it. Um, so the, the surgery wow. itself and the aftermath has been great. Um, I will say one of the other parts of the experience that was different for me was my time in the hospital and, and in the intensive care unit. Um, a, a part, a large part of my career has been in developing connected devices, uh, on everything from pulse oximeters to ECG sensors to blood pressure cuffs and, and things like that. And I'm a big believer in the digital health and remote monitoring world and I woke up in the ICU with uh, basically every kind of wire connected to me and and that sort of thing. Yeah, we just run, uh, run through it. What were all the connections on you? What were all the things they were doing? Oh, well, uh, it was a little bit of everything. I had uh, certainly blood pressure, heart rate, pulse ox, temperature, uh, leg compression system that was uh, massaging my legs to keep uh, blood clots from forming. Glucose measurements that were done uh, to monitor my blood sugar, pain meds, obviously a big concern nowadays, and a dual port IV so they could pump uh, medicine in into me uh, or take samples in case of infection or something like that. Um, well, so the and- sleep must have been great. Must have been the best <laughs> sleep of your life, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of the things, and, and I'm an old pulse ox guy. I, I, I worked at a major uh, pulse ox uh, company, and and in, in early in my day, I used to be quite a runner. And as a result, even these many years later, I have uh, a relatively low resting heart rate. And unfortunately, it tended to trigger the pulse ox system, and and they finally set it at like 45 because they set oh, it at no. 50, and it would beep and wake me up. And in addition, in ICU, they come in and wake you up every hour anyway to see how you're doing, to take your temperature, to do things like that. Um, being woken up from a sleep to have vital signs taken or monitored or that. Uh, I truly believe, uh, as, as a med device developer, I'd hoped we'd move beyond that, but obviously we haven't. Um, uh, I was very, very connected, and probably the only, the only connection that I really felt grateful for was the catheter because I knew I was in no position to get up and go to the bathroom, and, <laughs> and being able to, to, to do that is a weird feeling, but uh, th- that's a connection that probably won't go away. But everything else, it was. Beeping, buzzing, waking me up. I will say the, the the medical staff is superb. They treated me well. They 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 addressed my concerns. They talked to me. But you know, you're you're every time you're being um uh, you're coming awake, you're asked what's your name, where are you, and how bad's the pain. I mean, those are the three questions I got really used to answering as I as I went through the process. Yes, I mean you really. I mean, you 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 knew, you know, from your experience in the device industry that, you know, that the the hospital setting is is not. There's a lot of good reasons to get people out of the hospital as quickly as possible, but but it, it sounds like it, it's it's different experiencing that firsthand. 
Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Being the patient and having many of these devices hooked up to me just made me realize that all those folks I've talked to in all the companies over the years, we really need to develop those uh, uh, sensors to be wireless. We need to make them less obtrusive. We need to come up with all of those things. So so I came out of there saying, guys, we've got to get to work on this and and make life in the hospital a lot, lot better. Having said that, um, I am a big advocate of getting people home as quickly as possible. There's a chart I've used in talks for probably at least the last six or seven years, and it came from the in, uh, from Intel, actually, which would be strange, but they were studying the effects of healthcare, and it shows the the incredible cost of being in the hospital as opposed to moving into main floor care, into assisted care, and and ultimately home. And your happiness and probability of recovery uh, as well. And I've used that chart for years, but it was the first time that really made me, it, it really brought it home to me because I said, I don't, you know, getting well here, A, it costs a lot of money, which I wasn't worried about at the time. B, it's just not conducive to it. And, and I really would like to get home. Going into surgery, I was told it's probably a three to five days in the hospital kind of a thing. Uh, but actually, after the after the first night in ICU, the next day they came in and, and said I was doing well enough. They moved me to the med surge floor. And I'm still expecting to be three to four days more in the hospital. And on the uh, uh, after the second night, uh, the surgeon came in and said, well, you seem to be doing well. Would you like to go home? And and. Wow, that was that was really interesting. I knew it was probably good for me because one of the worst places to catch an infection is in the hospital. On the other right. hand, my, my oh, go ahead, Chris. No, I mean it just it's 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 interesting that you were like surprised, like what? You're, you're, I'm coming over to the hospital right now. Uh, well, I called my wife and my sister who were in preparing uh, my my uh, my bed for the next uh, six weeks or so uh, at home and said, well. Guys, they're thinking about sending me home today, and, and they basically panicked because they were going to be my nursing crew, and the last time they had seen me, I had this huge bandage on my head. I had this uh, wonderfully impressive uh, scar that started in the middle of my head and ran around down behind the right ear, and and they're both saying, uh, geez, we're not sure we're in a position to be able to take care of you. Well, fortunately, they were, uh, and, and they got me set up here at home, and... Um, uh, I spent the next, uh, you know, f- six weeks sitting upright, sleeping because of swelling and and things like that. But in general, um, things went uh, very, very well. Yeah, I mean, the great um, news. I mean, yeah, I mean, we uh, and we grabbed coffee just a you know a month or so ago. You're out out about town, meeting with people, doing stuff now. Um, got you're in Alaska in June, right? Yeah, that was one of the things that made this a very interesting challenge because uh, diagnosed in March. Uh, we had had a, a, a once in a life trip planned with some three other couples, some really, really close friends that we were planning on June 5th to leave for Alaska. And when I talked to the doctors about it, uh, they were of the opinion, uh, well, you could put the surgery off, but you're already having some symptoms. And how would you like to be on a boat in Alaska uh, and and have something really serious pop up? And, and my wife immediately spoke up and said, yeah, let's not do that. On the other hand, I asked the doctors, well, what's the probability I can have surgery and um, be able to get on an airplane, fly to Alaska and sit and, you know, go on an 11-day cruise? They said, well, 
it all depends on how well you're you're going to go through the surgery and everybody's different and we'll make no guarantees. So the doctor who chose to operate said, I, I'll, I'll arrange a schedule so we can do surgery quickly. I, pref- I would prefer you to, to get the surgery done and I will talk to you a week before your trip is scheduled and we'll make a decision then. So we did the surgery on April 18th. And on uh, the later part of May, uh, about a week before June 5th, I was in seeing the neurosurgeon and going through my paces and had the conversation. And he basically was more worried about blood clots at the time than anything else. So he made me promise that if I got up and marched around on the airplane and didn't sit still for too long and did things like that, that he would approve uh, uh, me going. So it's just we great that everything's like, you know, gone. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, I, I'm, you know, personally really happy that everything's gone so well for you. And, and, you know, and that here we are, we can, you know, sit here and chat here in September and, you know, you're, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're back in business basically. I, I am. I, I will say that, uh, after the surgery and, and after that, uh, I did take it easy. I slept a lot. Uh, as I said, I had to sleep upright and, and do some things like that, which were an, an adjustment. I also bought a lot of hats uh, to, to, to wear on the trip because he said, well, don't get sunburned. And also, it'll take a while for the scar to heal. So you uh, ha- had some interesting uh, things. You know, Let's not scare small children with uh, your head uh, a scar. So I bought lots of hats and started doing things, enjoyed the cruise, got beautiful memories and beautiful photos. And uh, basically, I'm back at full speed now. Um, you know, I mean, you know, when I hear your, your whole story, I mean, one of the biggest themes that I hear really is that, I mean, there are all kinds of things that you intellectually knew, you know, from your medical device experience, but it was one thing to just to know those things and actually go through them and feel them. I mean, I hear that with the, you know, MRI story that, you know, it was, it was one thing that, I mean, you knew that it was an uncomfortable experience, but, you know, the, the you know, for, for a patient, but to actually being an MRI was, you know, you, I mean, you really felt that and there, there was like more of a, of an insight there. And the, and the same goes with, you know, being in recovery in a hospital room and, you know, seeing how connected what you were to all these, you know, monitoring devices and having, you know, nurses constantly coming in and checking stuff and checking alarms and waking you up. Um, you know, and you knew that happened, but, you know, it was another thing to, to experience that. I mean, I mean, is there any way to teach somebody that, do you think, now that you've gone through it, like, you know, other than being in a health emergency or? Uh, you know, there's been a big focus in the, the long time that I've been doing product design uh, of various sorts and in, in for the last, you know, several decades in, in a lot of it in the medical space. We talk about humanizing the patients and, and patients taking control of their care and doing that. And, and this really became it became very real for me. The annoyance of alarms, and you hear about alarm fatigue when you're, you're defining a product, uh, was critically important to me because those alarms were keeping me awake and, and doing whatever. So it, it, it did make me even a, a more firm believer in, in, in patient, in, in people-centered medicine, not even patients anymore. Uh, people-centered medicine, whether it's the device, whether it's the recovery environment, whatever it is, and it really did bring it home. I think we do teach that nowadays uh human factors the fda is recognized as a critical uh, a critical element of product design and uh you know uh, 
hopefully most people don't have to go through most design people and engineers don't have to go through something like this to to get it but i think as an industry um it it we're really still are continuing to adapt to that um but if I you were hiring if you were hiring somebody to help you with a product development project and and you know you, you had you know a number of candidates and they're all pretty much equal you know, but but one had happened to be to have been through a number of serious health emergencies in the past. I mean, would that be a consideration then? Like, gosh, this person they knows get they get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I had the pleasure of working on a project to help people who have uh, spinal cord injuries, and and worked on a project with some folks there. And one of the lead engineers was someone who needed the product and 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 suffered from uh, a disability associated with the ability to to move one's arms and that sort of thing um, so it, it it adds an incredible urgency to it and and so having gone through it certainly is the impetus for a lot of people to go solve these problems uh, the the analogy that that I, I use is the the chicken and the pig and and having ham and eggs for breakfast. The chicken is interested in it, but the pig is definitely committed to the ham that you're eating. Um, it, it made it more real for me. It, it instilled in me a a better understanding of what goes on in the process and and the reality of the situation. And uh, while I don't wish for anyone to to have to walk through the system in the same way that I did, fortunately in my case the outcome was very positive. I'll throw in uh, another piece of my sermon, however, because I think this is critically important, particularly I mentioned I like digital health and remote monitoring. Well, we're all aging and we're all getting older and and there are fewer and fewer skilled caregivers. And the one thing we're really going to face and, and I'm very interested in is how we're going to adapt technology, uh, whether it's remote monitoring, whether it's uh, new devices and new capabilities for the elderly, because we've got an epidemic coming up there. And that's one of the spaces that I know is going to be an issue for us. And that sooner or later, heaven help us, we're all going to get to the point where we're, we're slower and we need help and, and we need those things. So. I'm I'm really interested in product developments in the medical from the medical perspective. They're going to help us age in place, age well, uh, and 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 be much healthier. As 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 a baby boomer, I'm part of that generation, and and I don't want to go uh, gently into that that aging space. So I, I really think we need to take that into account as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like not only do do people feel better about recovering in their homes, but there there's just going to be a growing need for it because we're just not going to have the the facilities and the professionals to to do it like at hospitals. So we you know we need to you know we need more devices and more more monitoring, more ways to figure out how to do this. So it's it sounds like it's a it's opportunity and um, exciting field to 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 be in. It, it, it is, and I will say this: as a technology guy, I've been I've been involved in products for over forty years on technologies, and had the great fun of doing some of the most incredible stuff in 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 the world. I will say, it is still a people um, oriented business. That surgeon who took the extra time to talk to me and explain my, uh, you know, and, and explain it to me, even though you know I'm in a position of being able to ask really good questions because of my engagement in that. I know that he would take that time with anyone to answer their questions and allay their fears. The nurses, uh, male and female, uh, who took care of me in the hospital 
and and had compassion and 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 were taking care of me. The physical therapist who walked me around and boy, what a or or you know tested my mental faculties. I will tell you, it was scary. I make a living with my brain. And when you're going through and having somebody walk through your brain for seven and a half hours and you come out and you're being asked questions and doing an evaluation on mental health of connecting dots and doing numbers. And can you remember those five words we mentioned at the start of this conversation when they're assessing you and looking at that? That's a humbling, humbling experience. And and it is still a people business. And we can't forget that. And. I owe an incredible debt of thanks to to my surgeon, to the folks at the hospital, to the, you know, everybody involved in the care. Because while scary, and and while challenging, and and while put me on a long kind of a long road to recovery, um, the people actually help make that process go a lot more smoothly. And and you know we can't get that. Yeah, yeah this, is, that, this is really about people helping other people. Uh, Bill, th- this was great. And I think we, c- we had uh, some really good, you know, lessons and points in here for, you know, people in the industry. Uh, and I think there's a lot more we could cover, but we got to give people some reason to, to come and uh, listen to us talk at uh, Device Talks Minnesota next week. Absolutely. So, so but, uh, but Bill, um, real, real pleasure to have you on here. Uh, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm editor of Medical Design Outsourcing. Thanks again for listening.